Let's say we had the chance to visualize what our lives would look like 20 years from now. What kind of world would we build? Come, let's travel into the future. What will we see? This is from a 1939 World's Fair exhibit called Futurama. To help us get a glimpse into the future of this unfinished world of ours, the greater and better world of tomorrow that we are building today. They were envisioning a better life two decades into the future. And now we have arrived in this wonder world of 1960. The world we are now seeing is a vision, an artistic conception which may undergo many changes as it develops into the great realities of tomorrow. Sunshine, trees, hills and valleys, flowers and flowing streams. This world of tomorrow is a world of beauty. That world of sunshine and beauty is also filled with highways. Here is a highway intersection. Highway engineering at its most spectacular. Traffic may move safely and easily without loss of speed. By means of the ramped loops, cars may make right and left turns at rates of speed up to 50 miles per hour. Wait, why are we talking about highways in a podcast about longevity? Is this some metaphor for the long highway of life? Nope, we're talking real highways in their asphalt-laden glory because as it turns out, highways are a critical piece of the story about longevity in America and who is gifted the reward of longer, healthier life and who isn't. Today on the podcast, we're talking about how we've built and divided our cities and neighborhoods and why in a city like Chicago, people in the Streeterville section of the city live on average to age 90 and people unlucky enough to end up in Inglewood just nine miles away only live on average to age 60. Streeterville and Inglewood are a startling example of a pattern seen in cities across the country where life expectancy in some neighborhoods handily outpaces Japan, the longest lived nation on earth, and in other neighborhoods more closely resembles Equatorial Guinea, one of the 10 shortest lived countries. Understanding why this is so will tell us a lot about the future of longevity and longevity as a fundamental measure of equality. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. This season on the podcast, we ask what would a century-long life look like if we do more than just inherit the rules of the past? If we're able to reimagine how we live, how we learn, how we work, and how we take care of each other. If we could draw a new map of life. Today, we're going to plunge into the story of the American city, and we're going to start with those highways and why they matter so much. When the uh, interstate highway system was being developed initially under the Eisenhower administration and, and later on, in every city they had to figure out um, how to build their highways out to the suburbs so that uh, white people could live in their nice uh, homes in the suburbs and commute into their businesses and jobs in the, in the center of the city, and where to route those highways. That's Stephen Wolf, a professor in population health and health equity from the Virginia Commonwealth University Center on Society and Health. He's also a doctor who has practiced family medicine 
and he's thought a lot about the social determinants of health and longevity. For Wolf, the highway system is emblematic of the problem of this divide, literally. Which neighborhoods did they choose to decimate uh, to, to, to build and construct uh, those highways? Almost in every major city, uh, you will find that the highways were built right through the middle of the black community, often historic black communities that were the center of social life uh, and, and black businesses and, and, uh, uh, and theater and entertainment were the neighborhoods where the interstates were built. Highways. They all sounded so glorious in 1939. On all express city thoroughfares, the rights of way have been so rooted as to displace outmoded business sections and undesirable slum areas whenever possible. If you listen carefully to that clip, you might have heard the narrator mention displacing undesirable slum areas. Undesirable slum areas, code for uprooting black communities, often successful ones, in favor of convenience for suburbia and wealthier, whiter parts of town. Take, for example, what is now known as the Highway to Nowhere, a stub of a road that has uprooted life in West Baltimore. It is also intersected with the lives of some of the most prominent people in Maryland and American political life. US 40, as it is technically known, was originally proposed by Robert Moses, the grand architect of New York City, to be an east-west artery of the city. And it was championed by Baltimore Mayor Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., the father of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Work began in the 1960s with the bulldozing of a vibrant black neighborhood, destroying a school, 971 houses, and 62 businesses, and displacing 1,500 residents. But environmental opposition to the project led by a then-obscure local activist named Barbara Mikulski, who did not want the highway to reach her own quaint Fells Point neighborhood, eventually encouraged Governor Spiro T. Agnew to cancel the project in mid-development. What is left is six lanes of sunken road bed that runs only a mile and a half, then stops. And yet, 50 years on, remains a broad scar on the area, dividing neighborhoods, impeding development, and piling on environmental woes. Here is Glenn Smith looking out at the highway in Baltimore. He lived here until 1969, when his family was forced to sell and move. Where we're standing at, there was once um, uh, a community where you had all the amenities that you need, entertainment, food. Now a food desert, it was not a food desert before this project came through. It's like a monument to what happened to our community. There's no healing when you realize that that thing is still there, that there's a, a gorge right in between your community and the community you used to be connected to. And you have somebody come in and say, well, we want your house. You take this money or are we gonna take it anyway? That's devastating. You take our homeowners and people who have lived there for years and, and generations. It's like taking the heart out of a body. Denise Johnson had a similar experience when the state came for her father's house. My father had lived on Franklin Street and he had to move because they were tearing down blocks of houses to put up the highway. The houses were torn down and they, they completed the highway. It didn't go anywhere and we thought it was weird. Why would they, the government, uh, tear down these houses to put something like this up that doesn't go anyplace? 
it interfered with the passage of people going from, let's say, one neighborhood or one block to the next block. It was a total interruption, and it still is. Uh, people kind of see a separation uh, where um, you're on this side of the highway, the west side of the highway, or you're on the south side of the highway. Separating communities from the west side or the south side. Stephen Wolf found similar and deliberate acts of segregation in cities across the U.S. I've gone to uh, to speak about this subject uh, in to uh, uh, conferences and cities around the country, and people always come up to me afterward and say, "Yeah, that happened here." Um, and what it does is it not only destroys all of that social capital that existed in those communities, but it actually creates a physical barrier that that cuts off the neighborhood. Uh, from um, economic opportunity, uh, from mobility, uh, and from for building social ties, and further segregated the neighborhoods uh, from the white communities and, and the resources that they had. These parts of town become islands, cut off from jobs, health care, and recreation, and exposed to pollutants and stresses. If you are living in an area where um, you don't have access to healthy food, uh, you don't have uh, a built environment that allows you to be physically active, to walk, to cycle, to exercise. Um, and, and also, if you lack the resources to be able to purchase healthy foods, to have a gym membership, uh, and, to, uh, and to go to the doctor uh, and pay for the out-of-pocket expenses that are associated with health care in this country, uh, you are at a distinct disadvantage. Um, segregation itself, the actual uh, experience of, of discrimination and racism uh, and social isolation is harmful to our health. The trauma that people experience uh, in segregated communities uh, has a known adverse inf- effect on health. And so these, these place-based conditions, as we call them in academia, um, are, are powerful drivers of health. It's been long understood that life's lottery could have a profound impact on longevity, whether you were born rich or poor, white or black, in a city or in a rural area. But Wolf and his colleagues at VCU have been driving from these general characteristics to understand much more specific data. In 2018, his VCU team circled in for a specific look at the greater Washington, D.C. area. Well, for years, we've been looking not only at national health trends, but also how health varies geographically across our country at at the state level, at the regional level, and even at the local level. So when you look at a metro area or our communities, uh, what looks like a, a, a good health situation uh, can actually be much more granular and nuanced when you start zooming in on particular neighborhoods, zip codes, and census tracts. Metropolitan Washington, D.C. has a lot of very affluent areas, especially the suburbs of Washington, D.C. In suburban Maryland and Northern Virginia are among the most wealthy in the the country. But it's also home to areas of deep poverty and uh, very adverse living conditions. And so this project was part of a set of studies that we have been doing to try to raise public awareness about the magnitude of those disparities. The uh, work that you're referring to was commissioned by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, and among their concerns was uh, to understand how the region was doing in terms of health. 
and uh, we were brought on to document disparities in life expectancy that existed across the region. But we also developed a new kind of index called the Healthy Places Index, which allowed us to describe how healthy different neighborhoods were also across the, the census tracts within the region. Washington, D.C. boasts posh neighborhoods like Georgetown, home to diplomats, power brokers, and the city's elite, who on average lived to an astounding age of 94. Across town, within eyesight of the soaring dome of the U.S. Capitol, is Anacostia, a ward with an historic past, but a present characterized by poverty, crime, and an average lifespan at 67 that is depressingly brief compared to Georgetown. We, we have segregation, a history of segregation in, in most U.S. cities. It's striking that in Washington, D.C. right now, if you look at a map of the distribution of the population uh, for white and, and people of color, uh, it, it, it basically looks like a, a line has been drawn right through the middle of the city. Uh, and on one side, you have on the left a large concentration of the white population. Georgetown is uh, quite uh, tip typical of, of this area of northwest D.C. And, and then on the right side uh, is a largely African-American, Hispanic uh, population. And Anacostia is a historically black community uh, where there is a long history of segregation and uh, the current statistics that we see in that area reflect the multi-generational effects of segregation over time. But also that other side of the river became a place where uh, pollutants that were dumped into the river ended up flowing. So it became a heavily polluted area and in time uh, an area that was uh, not desirable for white homeowners. The uh, famous civil rights leader Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, actually lived in Anacostia, but he was uh, un unable to own a home because of the nature of the times. So this was an area that uh, has historically been marginalized. It was the place where public housing uh, was located in the 1940s and 50s when public housing was built. Um, and it's like most uh, marginalized communities across this country, has suffered from a pattern of economic, of a downhill economic spiral brought on by the policies that segregated that community and cut it off from the uh, resources neighborhoods need for economic development. Longevity is often associated with the challenges of old age and the workings of our healthcare system. But in fact, the first 1,000 days of a child's life often lays out a blueprint one that can condition the length and quality of life. I asked Wolf to compare the first thousand days of life for a child in Georgetown versus the first thousand days for a child in Anacostia. There actually are resources that, that tell the story of two similar uh, children born at the same time, but growing up in these different environments. Uh, it obviously makes makes a big difference. I mean, that's the typical child growing up in Georgetown uh, the mother is able to take maternity leave. Perhaps the father can take paternity leave. Um, they are able to lavish resources on the new baby and, and toddler that include not only the basics of uh, healthy nutrition, uh, uh, nursing and, and healthy diets and so forth, 
but also the attention for maternal bonding and, and uh, other uh, factors that we know from psychological research are important to develop to, to development. They can have access to uh, preschool education, which has been shown to actually significantly improve performance and, and completion of college degrees and uh, economic opportunities later in life. Uh, and they are able to uh, enroll in kindergarten and, and uh, succeed in uh, educational outcomes because they not only have a family support system that can facilitate their education, but have access to all kinds of extracurricular activities to uh, fill out their experience. But that's only the beginning. They live in a neighborhood where it's easy to go play at the park, at the playground, and uh, participate in, in school sports programs. The child in Anacostia uh, has a very different, uh, the typical child in Anacostia, I, mean, I don't mean to overgeneralize, uh, has a different experience uh, in life. Uh, starting out from birth, uh, the nutritional opportunities may be more limited. The maternal bonding and paternal bonding may be more difficult because of uh, problems with the family structure, because people need to work multiple jobs to bring in enough uh, money. There may not be access to the health care that the Georgetown child is able to get. Um, and uh, there's no guarantee of preschool. Some kids get it, some some don't. And then when they do get to public school, there's not going to be a lot of extracurricular activities. And they're, they're not going to have a lot of opportunity for, for sports. And frankly, the family is so challenged in terms of bringing an income, the kids are drawn very much to opportunities uh, that are not safe uh, and that may be criminal to try to bring in some money to, to pay for the kinds of basic necessities the family needs and the kinds of things that children often want to have in terms of their own uh, self-esteem, the, the kind of clothing that they see other kids have and, and so forth. So it draws them into uh, potentially getting involved with gangs, uh, drug activity, and so forth, uh, if nothing else, to deal with the, the poverty that, that they're facing. Now, again, I don't want to overgeneralize. It's not the case that every child in Anacostia ends up in a gang or gets involved with drug activity. But I just uh, am trying to emphasize that these kinds of behaviors that rich people look down on um, and uh, find uh, uh, abhorrent, uh, become a little more understandable when you realize the uh, living circumstances that people are coming up uh, dealing with. The Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, which has been looking at the concept of an age-forward city for some time, proposes addressing some of these challenges through a systematic effort that would include safe and affordable housing, integrated transportation and mobility solutions, and creating public spaces that draw together young and old alike. But Wolf thinks we have another systemic effort to deal with as part of solving the larger challenges of age disparities. There, there are uh, some very difficult challenges uh, in solving this problem, and the, and the one that obviously comes to mind first is systemic racism itself. So we're, we're not really going to move the needle and change the core problem here until we deal with the fact that so many people in our society live according to a hierarchy of human value that says that people with a particular skin pigment are more favored over another. Uh, as a doctor, I can say that the amount of melanin in your skin has no logical explanation for why uh, people's health is worse. Race is a social construct. It's not a biologic one. 
and uh, it's our society that has um, uh, created the the disparities that we see in communities of color. Uh, ultimately, that problem's not going to be changed until we as a society shake loose this really uh, morally abhorrent concept that uh, people differ in their value based on their on their skin color. Uh, in addition to that, though, uh, I, there is some good news here, which is that the, the solution to improving health outcomes is not a, a whole new slate of proposals that are different than the ones that are currently already on our plate. You know, we could we could have a different podcast talking about economic development and the American middle class and, and what has to be done to bring good jobs back to America. And the policy solutions for that are largely identical to what uh, I as a doctor would recommend for improving health outcomes. So our investments in education and trying to provide good educational opportunities for, for children of all backgrounds, making college affordable, job training and skills training to help people who relied on manufacturing or mining jobs to be able to compete in 20, for 21st century jobs, making housing affordable, investing in infrastructure so that we have good transportation systems with uh, affordable fares are all things that we're already talking about. The struggles of, uh, of the Rust Belt and the industrial Midwest, the middle class voters that uh, are the swing voters that politicians worry about in, in getting reelected, their, their problems, solving their problems are exactly what we need to do to address uh, the, the health inequities uh, that we have in our country. For all the deeply rooted challenges, Wolf remains a bit of an optimist. Somewhat gingerly, I asked him whether he could imagine a day in which a kid in Anacostia could have the same first thousand days as a kid does today across town in Georgetown. I can imagine it. And uh, if you talked to me 10 years ago, I would have said, we're on the way, that we're on track to get there. I would have said, we're we're living in a different time, and it's not like it was when I was growing up in the 60s and the civil rights movement was trying to defend something as basic as uh, one's ability to vote. But now I'm, I'm more concerned uh, and worried about the direction our country is going. And that, that halcyonic uh, childhood, uh, I worry more about how long it's going to take before we'll actually get there. It's concerning, but this is a concern coming from someone who looks like I do. And I know that my, my friends and neighbors who are uh, people of color uh, have much deeper worries. And, and it's worries that are not only uh, how can I uh, have that kind of early childhood experience for my child that they, they do in Georgetown, but how do I get my kid to survive getting pulled over for a loose license plate on their car, where we have to uh, worry about uh, the ability to to uh, to survive in an, uh, an encounter for a traffic stop. We are living in a time where uh, those concerns are resurfacing in a way that I had not predicted. And finally, Stephen and I circled back to the problems wrought by our enthusiasm for urban highways. I was curious to know if there are efforts to undo the mistakes of the past. A number of cities are being much more mindful of this issue and being intentional about 
changing the the cityscape and to create uh, new designs that either, as you say, bury uh, highways or uh, alter the the construction of the transportation grid in a way to avoid this problem, and others that sort of work around it to create tunnels, pathways, uh, pedestrian overpasses, and so forth. Intentional efforts to try to overcome the kinds of problems that uh, the older city design created. And that highway to nowhere in Baltimore? There are funds included in President Biden's infrastructure bill, currently before Congress, to remove the highway and redevelop the area. City planners are recommending getting rid of the overpasses, adding grocery stores, recreation amenities, and a rapid transit line. Here is Maryland Congressman Anthony Brown at a press conference in May of 2021. This highway to nowhere was a huge mistake, but this is an opportunity, a transformational opportunity. What I always like to say, to turn the the tragedy of this into the triumph, not only for this community, but future communities. To hear what happened to that highway to nowhere, check back in with us for our own Futurama episode of 2041. In the great American way. Coming up next on Century Lives, what it's really like to live in a multi-generational household and the unexpected benefits of living with your in-laws. So I was doing a lot of media and I went on a radio show, a live radio show in Louisiana. And the person who was interviewing me kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me, saying, isn't this horrible? Isn't it sad? And I kept saying, no, this is what we've heard. This is what we have. So he opened up the lines, and everybody who called in lived in a multi-generational household. And so finally he asked one guy, he said, well, you know, I wouldn't want my mother-in-law living with me. I don't know how you can stand having your mother-in-law live with you. Doesn't it impact your sex life? And The guy said, well, he chuckled and he said, well, actually, no, it's better because now our daughter crawls in bed with her grandmother instead of us. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Ava Ahmed-Beggy. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.